rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome to episode four of Rumors of Grace. I'm sitting here in the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work office, uh, beautiful new offices. I'm sitting across from my good friend, Missy Wallace. Welcome, Missy, to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Bob, and kind of full circle since you were the one who designed our original logo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Forgotten about that. Um, yeah, it has been full circle. It's been, what, three and a half, four years now almost? Mm-hmm. Um before we jump into your story, Missy, tell us what the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work is. The Nashville Institute for Faith and Work is an organization dedicated to helping individuals, groups, or organizations think through what the Christian faith means in the day-to-day workings of the organization. And so really we're on a journey to help people figure out and organizations figure out what might it look like to systematically shine light on darkness in their sphere of influence, in their industry, in their company, in their particular job description, and really people help people understand that creating spreadsheets matters to God, mm-hmm. sweeping floors matters to God, running companies matters to God, mm-hmm. um, and in a, a way that... Um, is beyond what maybe the traditional Southerner might think around evangelism or ethics, but in a holistic way that God cares about um, companies, God cares about banking, God cares about insurance, God cares about forestry management, help Mm. people understand how they're part of God's unfolding story. That's great. I love it. Um, That sounds like a big undertaking. Is this something that you went to seminary for? Do you train for this? Mm-hmm. And I'm, 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 I'm smiling as I'm asking that because I know the answer. <laughs> um, so the answer is that God uses unlikely people <laughs> in his story. <laughs> and so, no, I have not been to seminary and I do not have a lifelong pastoring, ministering type of career. Actually, I worked in the for-profit sector for around 12 years and have an MBA and worked in for in banking and consulting and um, in media and various cities around the world. And then when we moved to Nashville, I had a consulting client that was a nonprofit organization that ended up asking me to join them. And I made a very quick decision to join because of bad faith and work theology. Mm. So I had a theology that said there was an A team that was the ministers and the missionaries and a B team that was all the helping professions and the C team that was everyone else except for the D team that was the bankers and the consultants and maybe Mm. some lawyers. And I had been on the D team most of my career. And in my mind, I was moving up to the B team by moving into the nonprofits, that I was doing better work for God than Mm. I was in the for-profit sector. And through a set of life circumstances that maybe we'll talk about later, I later learned that theology was incredibly flawed. Mm. And... um, felt a nudge from God that I needed to help people understand um, that that theology was flawed and that actually all work matters to God. Hmm. So did you grow up as Christian in a Christian home? I mean, what I find that many times, I know myself included, 
we come to points in our lives when we make these shifts of thinking and we grow on on our journey. Um, a lot of that comes from, you know, nature and nurture. Talk to me about your faith journey. Sure. So um, I grew up in a home where um, I was churched, but I would not say that Christianity was um, the lead in our family's life. Um, My mom took us to church. My dad did not go to church. Um, I did the required sixth grade confirmation class and um, prayed the prayer and had baptism. Um, But all I really remember from that was that I was 12 years old and had just gotten my first bra and we were wearing white robes and I was afraid (laughs) somebody could see it. (laughs) So I'm not sure that that was actually, I'm not sure I became a believer at that point, but um, the gospel really captured my heart for the first time through young life in high school. Mm. My parents had divorced and um, through the pain that comes with that, um, I think I was um, raw to be captured, but I would say my faith journey. How old were you when your parents divorced? Twelve. Wow. Twelve or thirteen. Was yeah. that pretty? Was that pretty um, traumatic, or was it? You know, I think that um, divorce is just a lifelong wound for everybody, mm-hmm. and I remember being embarrassed. Really? Like I didn't want people to to. Mm. to think that 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 of my family but and so I did you come from being, a home that had to have it all together or no was I, just came, you? I came from a home that um there wasn't any fighting so I remember just being very surprised like what how could this possibly be happening but in retrospect and just um time and becoming an adult and have amazing individual parents my dad has died now but um I understand now as an adult what happened but I just could not I could not understand it because to me there had been no fighting so what was the problem um so I think it was a painful time it was a time I felt I don't know maybe a bit abandoned in some sort or Mm -hmm. um that that the it was it was probably my first experience of the life that I saw for my future was beyond my control. Mm-hmm. That was probably my first so your example safety, of that. My safety and my is. dreams and what I yeah. think the future might look like. Um, and anyway, then after um, I experienced the gospel through young life, I got to college and I just don't think I was mature enough to fully embrace it with all that college brings. And I pretty quickly put the faith in the trunk Mm. of the car. And I kept it in the trunk. I would show up at church now and then, but Christianity was not on the forefront of my mind. And I was not trying to follow my Savior. And Jesus was not Lord and King of my life in any way, shape, or form. It was on my terms. And I figured out in college, really in high school, actually, that um, I could get some attention, positive attention for performing well on things, Mm. whether it was bringing a good report card home or um, making good grades. I thus began my journey, I think, of um, achievement addiction of some Mm. sort. And um, 
And that's, that a, that's a heavy addiction. It is the most socially acceptable, hardest to see. Mm. Um, and so when I got to college, I just was super busy, um, involved, doing lots of things, making good grades, taking hard classes, um, running, whatever it was, like I was going to do it, um, and put the faith in the trunk, no dependence at all. And I think I became quite a bootstrapper somewhere along the line. I think also I was the youngest one in my grade starting from kindergarten on. Um, I was physically the smallest until probably eighth or ninth grade. Mm -hmm. And I think then after the divorce, I just somewhere along the line, I developed a bootstrapper. I can do it Mm -hmm. anything mentality. And then the I can do anything mentality turned into if you do things well, you get a lot of positive affirmation for that. And Mm -hmm. that feels pretty good. so it set me on a cycle that I think has been pretty tough to, to break. Um, but anyway, I put the faith in the trunk and then really did not get it out for about 10, 10 or 12 years. Mm-hmm. And so I went through my first job in banking and I went through business school. And if anybody's listening that knew me in those times, you had no idea that I was a Christian. I'm quite certain. Um Worked for a consulting firm in Chicago, Singapore, and Bangkok. People that worked at that firm with me probably have no idea that I was a Christian. And um, in fact, I'm now back in touch with one of my bosses from that time, and he's a Christian as well. And mm-hmm. it's been fun to reconnect in that way. Um, moved to New York City, and I was working for Time Warner, and our I had was pregnant with our second child. Mm. And when we moved back to New York, I think as does happen with some people, the existence of children in our life made us both go, hmm, something's missing here that we need for our children. And so we found our way back to the church. I found my way to Bible study fellowship. Mm -hmm. Um, And so our faith started growing again. And so I kind of characterize that time as Jesus was out of the trunk now, but he's in the back seat. On our terms, um, we were both working in New York, very typical, um, fast-paced, go, 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 we can do anything mentalities. And you had Um, one child at the time? We had one child pregnant with the second. And um, when my second child was born, he was born with a birth defect that required immediate surgery. Heart or? Uh, Intestinal. Okay. And um, life-threatening, but not lifelong. It was fixable. Um, but it required about, I don't know, between 75 and 90 days in the hospital that first mm-hmm. year. And I think that was probably the second time in my life that I was like, okay, like, hmm, this isn't exactly how I, I'm not really in control of how everything go, rolls. What was that like seeing your child, you know, nothing you can do in the hospital for that long for someone who's a type a achiever i'm gonna i can control and 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 do things really well and get praised for that what was that feeling like i mean so we very obnoxiously went into trying to control it so (laughs) try and tell the doctor what to do we interviewed every surgeon that did this surgery and we found Mm -hmm. the one that had done it the most and we actually changed the hospital where I was going to deliver so we could have that surgeon we found out when it was in utero Um, so we went about busying ourselves with the act of trying to control what was uncontrollable Um, but there was a very powerful moment where um, 
the intestines have to kick back in. Mm-hmm. And we're about four weeks past where they thought they would have kicked mm-hmm. back in. And so they're having a discussion with us saying, um, and, and the child can't eat until the intestines kick back in. And so, so he's having IV. to be fed mm-hmm. intravenously mm-hmm. and things like that. And he was in the sickest part of the PICU, but he was born a normal size. So all the other mothers are looking at me. Their babies are like one and a half pounds. And I've got that. He looked like Goliath over in the incubator <laughs> at eight pounds. And the, the, um, the other mothers were looking at me like, you don't really deserve to be here. Your mm-hmm. baby looks too healthy. Um, but there was an experience where um, we needed the intestines to kick back in. And we just had the hard conversation of if they don't, what might be next and our pastor came and prayed over the incubator Mm. and the intestines kicked back in within the hour Mm. wow and honestly we couldn't we couldn't process that Mm. we couldn't see it for a potential prayer answered or a potential miracle we just saw really to be honest it was just kind of a nice little coincidence that left me hanging for a while Mm. But um, later in life, I had a pastor that would always say, stop running because Mm -hmm. God is going to get you. (laughs) The faster you surrender. um, And in looking back, like, you know, we we kept running a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, that That was a pretty flagrant attempt to get us. And we were like, hmm, wasn't that a nice little Mm -hmm. coincidence? Um, But it was enough to keep us pursuing our faith. And we ended up moving to Nashville a few years later, and there's all kinds of twists and turns and God's involvement and all that that's probably too much to tell. Um, But a number of years later, our firstborn was seven now at this point. Mm -hmm. So the one who had had the birth defect is now six, and we have a third one now. Um, But our firstborn um, started um, acting odd, like, hmm. Then her handwriting started getting really messy and I was like hmm that handwriting that handwriting looks like a teenage boy's I, that's odd just all these kind of things started happening she became very anxious she developed a hand trimmer um, long story short um, her second grade teacher had been out for a health care issue over a number of months and came back and kind of screamed at us like what has happened to your child? She's a shell of herself from when I left. Mm. But it had been so insidious that you didn't that even. we couldn't really quite capture it. We'd gone to the doctor three times and said, we think something's wrong. And the doctors were like, hmm, well, we've run a bunch of bug tests. Everything looks good. Let's keep an eye on it. Um, she had lost about 10 pounds. Second graders don't lose 10 pounds. Um, but the... Um, on March 10th, 2006, we got some MRI results that were really um, a fork in the road in our life. And that was when a doctor came and said, um, you're, you're gonna lose your child. Something is wrong and it's not good. Um, it's in the brain. And we think she has this genetic degenerative brain disease. She said, they, he said literally, you're gonna lose your child. We were checked out of the hospital with um, words on the discharge papers that said, discharge to hospice, return in six months, if not expired. Wow. Um, And so the good news is I I still have my child. She's 20. She's thriving. You know her. Um, But it was um, a treacherous five-year journey. 
And what, what they originally thought she had, she did not have. Um, she actually had an autoimmune attack on her brain. Now, I don't know if you've ever, have you seen the movie? It's on Netflix yes. right now, Brain, brain on, on Fire. fire. Yes. She had Brain on Fire. Oh, wow. As so the eight-year-old. She, she had a slightly different version of it, but she had the eight-year-old version of Brain on Fire. And so it led And from that movie, what they left it was, this was a thing that no one knew, and they were getting all these bad yes. advice. Yes. Did you run into the same thing? You know, I want to be careful, because I just think yeah. our doctors just were doing the very yeah, best they could at with the information they had. But the first diagnosis was either wrong or, or a miracle happened, and I'll go with some mixture of both. Um, we got to um, the bottom of the diagnosis um, pretty quickly. Um, by quickly, I say months, not years. Um, and part of it was that bootstrapping this is not okay. We're we're finding we're finding a different answer. By gosh, we're going to control yeah, yeah. this outcome, and um, we ended up at Hopkins with a specialist that helped us figure out that it was not diagnosis A. It was actually diagnosis B, but we could not get diagnosis B in control. And so, probably three, ten weeks in, we knew it was potentially not terminal, but. Um, Getting it in control took a few more years, and then recovering from the brain injury took a few more years after that. Mm. And so the getting it in control required numerous different paths, um, drugs involved in chemotherapy-type drugs, um, a trip to Germany for a clinical trial for six weeks, um, really a trip to Mayo, really crazy stuff. Um, But we finally, this started in second grade in... um, the end of fifth grade, we finally got it in control. Mm. But along the way, there were four comas and several ambulances wow. and a life flight and general chaos, really. So were you giving all your attention to this one child? How were the other kids yeah. doing at the time? Yeah, that's like the painful question because we were doing what we needed to do to save Obviously, one child sure. and doing our best with the other two. Mm. Um, and had us all in as much counseling as we could get us to between the other Mm. doctor's appointments. Um, But I think the other children are still unpacking how it impacted them. And we're still unpacking Mm. that, you know, my... Because obviously your daughter had so much need, I mean... Yeah, her needs were high at the time. And you could not do that, so... And my, my second child is in an Ivy League college now, and the perfectionism that was... Required for that admission really was probably born out of the pain of there is so much chaos here. I'm just going to put my head down and be perfect and not make any waves Mm. in the family. And so um, while, you know, an Ivy League education to some might look like a real shiny outcome, like there's there's definitely some underlying pain that goes along with that. It's not all is not all that glitters is gold. so, so you finally got on top of it. So, yes, but during that, I guess here's the way to say it. I sometimes say to people, have you had your before and after event in life? And people either cock their head and say, what are you talking about? Mm. Or, yes, I have. And maybe those before and after moments change as life goes on. But that was a before and after minute for us. Mm. That literally for Good. years after that, we chronicle everything is was that before she got sick or after Mm. 
was that before or after? And still right. in my mind, a lot of times I'll be like, oh, well, that was before. Well, that's now it's after. Mm. Um, and I, you cannot enter a before and after event in your life without having a serious reckoning with is your worldview correct? And yes. is what you believe yes. and what you say you believe, do they play out? Mm-hmm. And so I think that was my first real reckoning with stated beliefs and functional beliefs. One of the one of the things that I've I've been learning through through those experiences is that um, there's three boxes in life. There's order, mm-hmm. there's disorder, and there's reorder. Mm-hmm. So we live and we like to start in order, mm-hmm. but at some point you're going to be thrown yeah. into disorder. And what you do in that disorder and how you reorder is, you, like you said, is it's, it makes you question everything that you ever yeah. knew. And what I realized, I don't, I couldn't have stated this at the time, but what it was was a fork in the road that said, "You you say you believe one thing, but you act differently." So mm-hmm. basically, you're a stated Christian that acts like a functional atheist. Mm-hmm. And so I had to come to terms with that. We only and, believe what we act upon. Yeah. And so, um, is God in control or am I in control? Mm-hmm. Is is was the fundamental question. And so that put me on just a really deep faith um, journey of I got to figure out if I really believe what I say I believe that led to just a lot of self-theological reading and um, God just like flooded me with um, I don't know if you experienced this, but for those of us who are addicted to achievement and who can achieve, um, I find that many times... I I equate that with really having a problem with understanding the love of God. Mm-hmm. I think those who live and are comfortable with their brokenness, and for those of us who might be a little more type A that look at those and say, get your act together, mm-hmm. I think they have a good grasp on God's love. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I'm pausing because I'm also spinning that around with, you know, just different Enneagram personalities. And so, you know, I think some of it's wiring and some of it's circumstance, but I feel like I get the journey. I get the privilege now of journeying with people looking at some of their brokenness within their work context and their own brokenness, as well as the system's Mm. brokenness in their work context. And I feel like there's kind of two core Brokenness is kind of go down to two core things. It's either I don't believe that God fully, fully loves me as I am, mm. or I don't believe he's fully accessible and in control. Mm. It seems like most brokennesses funnel down to one of those two. Yeah. It sounds simple, but it, it really comes down to that mm-hmm. once you strip everything away. Yeah. And I think, I think getting back to where we are in this conversation of before and after, order and disorder and reorder. Those are the questions yeah. that you have to ask yourself. And so the, the the major disorder of potentially losing a child is when Jesus moved out of, he's out of the trunk, he's out of the back seat. He started leaning into the front seat when our son had the birth defect, but it's when um, he, he made it to the front. He made mm. it to the front seat. Wow. And so now we kind of fight over who's behind the wheel. <laughs> Is he a front seat driver or is he the driver? Yeah, um, sure. And, you know, I lose that battle on most days yeah. and occasionally yeah. have... Me too. 
Um, <laughs> but he's not in the trunk anymore. So, so, so you, so you got through that, and I know that that's an ongoing journey with her and um, your other children. And now, okay, was that it? Yeah. Now you're back on track. You, you know, you and God yeah. are great. The family's yeah. good. You're going to church. Everything's <laughs> happy, right? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> uh, so anyway. When I was out of work, I I stopped working to care for her and for her recovery for about three and a half years. And um, when I went back to work, I went back to the school. I had helped start, um, I'd been on a team that had helped start a high school. I went back to the high school, but I went in a new capacity. I went as college counselor. I got to do that job for six more years. Mm. And that job was a complete and total delight. And when I'd been in business school, I'd been Mm. on the admissions committee of the school so I'd had some interesting experience doing that. I'd had all, of, when I'd worked for the consulting firm, I'd been on the interview recruiting team. So I'd had all these circumstances that led to this being a good fit. <clears throat> well, working with these students and parents in this very um, uh, academic, college preparatory, high-achieving families, high-achieving students, all of a sudden I was in all these triangles of seeing um, the power of false idols. Mm. So I'd been on this journey of seeing achievement um, and control as what they had done to me in my faith journey. And now I'm just sitting in the middle of it with families <laughs> of, of, in a process where I'm, I am feeding the monster in a way. Yeah, helping saying, those kids get into that uh, treadmill. Right. right. Or and, and the treadmill's not wrong. It's the perspective mm-hmm. about the treadmill. Exactly. And so... You know, suddenly I found I'm saying, what do you want? What will make you better? What will make you successful? What will make you happy? While at the same time, you know, I was not in a Christian school and it was not my place in this school to... um, Say, what does God want for this job? right. Right. But I found myself using secular language, trying to help people think through that question um, by saying, um, you know... uh, What's your larger unfolding story? Mm. What do you, what do you have a, a call to? Do you have a caller? That's good. What are you What are you living for? What is is your caller success? What is your caller? I know I have a caller, but what is yours? And so mm. I found myself using some language, and so I actually started. I love that. What's your call? Who's your mm-hmm. caller? What What is your caller? Is mm. it Is it success? Is it family? Is it Is it God? Is it God? What What or I would say things like this. Um, what defines your identity? Mm. So as you're thinking through wow. this process, um, and I that would actually, I would actually take a Manila folder and I would pass it to them, and I would say, "Pass me that Manila folder back." And I'd say, "Are you a different person now than you were before we just did that?" And they would say, "No," and I would say, "So that's your application to Stanford," and we're going to pass it to them, and they're going to pass it back. Mm. And whether they say yes or no, are you going to be a different person? Mm. I would say, I don't think you are. You might be on a different path, but that path is not what defines you. So what you should be thinking about is what defines you. And this is this opportunity to apply to college, absolutely it has an impact on what might happen. Sure. And it's a fork in your journey. But this is this is just this is part of your path. This isn't your definition. And so I'd really start a lot of my college counseling meetings um, around we're not going to let this outcome define you. Mm, that's um, good. And so what I found was that um, I wanted to 
do college counseling in a way where we could flip the story um, and that enable to where we could say, instead of what makes you happy, what will make you successful? What are your gifts? I wanted to have the freedom to say to kids, um, are you part of a larger unfolding story? Um, what gifts have you been given? How might you be part of that story? Um, just flip the question where you're right. not this, not the epicenter of it. Reduce the narcissism in yeah. it. And to be honest, it didn't. I didn't feel strongly that it had to be about Christianity, but I wanted to be able to help people flip sure. it. For me, it was Christianity. Um, and so I went, um, I started back into some um, seminary classes to try to understand um, or feel more confident that if I was going to lead some people in stories and questions like that, I needed to have a better theology um, and maybe some credentialing behind that. Mm -hmm. And so I started back to Divinity School thinking that I would be launching a nonprofit dedicated to helping people unpack that question. Mm -hmm. And I did not finish Divinity School, and I did start a nonprofit to help people unpack that question, but it's just at a different level. Instead of about a college choice, it's about work in general. That's great. And that um, that happened in a very powerful moment in how God met me in that time. Um, so has it been rewarding, fulfilling, a bed of roses? What's the last four years been like for you, three and a half years? I mean, I almost can't think of an emotion that, <laughs> that, you haven't experienced. that I have not had. So um, this is probably the first time in my life mm. that I felt like I was clearly told something by God mm. and reacted to do something about it. Mm. And so um, this has felt like an act of obedience to me. And... Um, it wasn't like, oh, I get to do my dream job or, oh, I'm leaving to do something better than what I was doing before. I actually loved my job at the school before. Um, or And so it's, but it has been, I feel like, um, Oz Guinness has a book called The Call. And it's a really fat book. But there's one part of the book that was super powerful to me. And he said, very rarely do people get their calls. First of all, who's your caller? If you, you have to have a caller to have a call. So I know who my caller is, but he said, very rarely do people get their calls on a megaphone. Ooh. You get your calls through a mixing of your gifting and your circumstance. Mm. And I, I don't feel like I got my call on a megaphone, but I do feel like I got this call for now through a whisper. Mm. And basically when I was in the divinity class, I was creating a pro I had to create a project and the project was this nonprofit around college counseling. I was about three quarters finished with it and I'm a three on the Enneagram and I am like to get stuff done and I efficiency model and so but I got a nudge to change the project like seventy-five percent in and that like threes on the Enneagram like completely hate that. Like, no, I'm almost finished, like right. I'm efficient, I gotta finish and get an A and move on and the nudge was I got. It's also on three and enneagrams. Important what other people think about you too. Yes. So you had that on top of it too. And people were going to like this other project. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and I was almost done. And I like let, efficiency. You can't let people know you failed. I you like didn't, efficiency. Didn't finish it. Yeah. Um, and I got exposed to all the faith and work literature as mm. part of working on this project. And I will never forget this day. It was about five fifteen in the morning. The sun was coming up. I live. I have this window where I can see the sun coming up. I'm furiously trying to finish it. And 
I felt God say, this is why. I was reading about the starting of the Center for Faith and Work in New York City. And I was just blown away by how long I had worked with bad Mm. theology. Mm. And I was just feeling remorseful that I had worked in the for-profit sector without having the luxury of having the spirit involved and understanding, thinking about shining light on darkness day to day. Mm. And that I, I almost had this longing to go back and work in my consulting role again. Not so that I could say to my cube mate, do you know about Jesus? But so that I could live in a way that may, might draw someone to the, to the light. I could do projects in a way that were not about me succeeding, mm. but were more about the client's uh, just all kinds of ways I wanted to do Great. it differently. And I felt God say, this is why I've given you these experiences. Mm. This is why you've had the for-profit. This is why you've had the non-profit. This is why you understand idolatry so clearly now. This is why can you help others. That's great. And so I just went, I literally had this like infusion of, I've heard, if you've heard the story of how um, the Messiah was written, it was like in this infusion of flurry where he didn't come out of his room for something like, I don't know, 60 days or something, 30 days. Mine was only like four hours. (laughs) But I felt like I had this infusion of like, writing the plan for NIFW. Like, ah, so it was like almost this. like a like a mystical experience for you. Yes, it really, it, it, and I'm almost scared to say that because especially publicly, now it's going to be on the internet. Somebody's <laughs> going to hear about it forever. And I, know, think it's, I think that's beautiful. If I'm doing something else in tomorrow or three months from now, does that mean that wasn't my call at the time? And I, no, I don't think it was. And I actually have had another... Um, you just, you, but you do feel like you have like this divine moment where yes. it all came together. Mm-hmm. Like your life came yeah. together and said, this is my call and this is my purpose. For for this season. For this season. And it's been really, parts of it were really easy, but then parts of it have been really hard. I feel like an imposter. You know, some days I feel like, we are, have done amazing work in retrospect. Some days I look at it like a house of cards. Some days I'm totally dependent on God. Some days mm-hmm. I'm like, I need to just stop being in charge of teaching this stuff and sit in the class because I am not putting, you know, I'm not, um, what's that phrase? Um, I'm forgetting the, pre- the phrase that basically, oh, do as I say, not yeah, say yeah, as yeah. I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I had another powerful experience about a year ago. I was very tired, and I was on an airplane, and I was going to a meeting to meet with other leaders of organizations like mine in other cities. And I had put my head down on the table with my peanuts and my Diet Coke. And I said, God, I am so tired. Um, and I'm out of balance, and I'm out of rest, work, rhythm, balance. And I'm, um, I'm not sure if I've got the balance right on work and family and is, is this what you've, is this, I, I think I've done what you've called me to, but is, am I just a starter? Do you want me to find a sustainer? Am I not called to keep going? Is this not, is this next season not for me? Um, and I did not get a megaphone. I did not get a nudge. I did not get anything. However, about three hours later, um, I, I mean, I was tired. I was like teary on the plane, tired as I prayed this. And I landed in San Diego, and I went to um, dinner with these other city leaders. There were about six of us, and there was only one at the table that I didn't know. And I ended up sitting right next to her as the seating unfolded. She said, how'd you get in this business? 
I said, wow. I mean, the two-sentence version is really bad faith work theology, a really sick child, and mm-hmm. a really gracious God. And um, she, most people gravitate onto what was the bad faith work theology. She gravitated onto what's the sick child part of it. Because um, it doesn't make sense, right? You would, sick child, like, shouldn't you be a hospital CEO or something? Like, it just, it doesn't make sense, but God makes these things make sense. I said, oh, sick child, well, you know, told the story I've just told on your podcast. And she said, oh, my goodness, what, what actually was it? So I gave her the name of the disease, which is actually kind of complicated. It's called Hashimoto's um, encephalopathy, not to be confused with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. But she was like, oh, my goodness, I've never heard of a child with that. I was like, yeah, it's, we are actually the first child on record in the U.S. that we knew of. It was a crazy time. She said, what got it in remission? I said, you know, it was this drug that's used on all kinds of things. It was being used for her off-label it's actually mostly used for leukemia or for transplants. And she said, what's the name of it? I said, well, I told her the name. And just like she, her jaw just dropped and her eyes teared up. I was like, she said, my husband was on the launch team of that drug. Wow. I was like, you know what? I just two hours ago on a flight said, God, should I keep going? Mm. And you just put me at dinner next to the person, the family, who was involved with the launch of the drug that saved my child's life. Mm. And if I move too fast, I'm going to miss that nugget. Mm-hmm. But I, didn't, I, I, I got clarity from that nugget. Mm. Um, and That's so, really wonderful. I, you That's know, amazing. I think that God gives us nuggets all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, maybe once a year I see my nugget, but that he actually has a nugget for me every day if I stop and look for it. That's great. Let, let's, um, and thanks for sharing that. It's an amazing story. Let's shift gears slightly. And let's talk about your day-to-day here and the things that you do. Um, you know, one of the things that I've appreciated about your work here in Nashville, and uh, we have listeners from all over the country and the world, but one of the things I appreciate so much is not only are you um, intentional, but you highlight bringing people together from different backgrounds and different races and different socioeconomic um, and put them in the same place and get them to to know each other, to talk about faith and work, but not not just that, but to go deeper into uh, their life experiences. I think that's so, so important, especially when it comes to faith, especially when it comes to understanding uh, our, our life and our walk in faith, because um, I can, I'm only going to see the world and interpret it through the lens of my own experiences in my life. And I try to, I uh, wrongly assume that everyone else interprets and sees things the same way. And I think our country as a whole right now is so polarized because of that reason is I gravitate to people in my tribe that see things the same thing. Um, but life is much more complicated than that. And there's such there's so many uh, more points on the continuum of right and left. There's a thousand in between. Talk to me a little bit about that and how, um, as in your own walk and in your own journey, as you've entered into that and if you've got to engage with people like that, how has that broadened your faith? How has it changed? How is it? 
where where are you on your journey as you engage with people like that? Mm. Well, first of all, I think you've said that I'm doing it better than we're doing it, but that's (laughs) that's okay. Listener, I'll take the compliment, but he might've made it sound better than it is. Um, We are very intentional about, we've been launched out of a Presbyterian church um, and most of what we would um, quote unquote teach would be kind of reformed theology but we're very denominationally sensitive by design. Um, And we really try to focus on um, if the tomb was empty and he rose from the dead and he's coming back, that's what matters. Mm. And that's that's what we need to care about. Um, And so we really try not to focus on some of the nuances that can get people so caught up. And I think those are important for them to work through in their church settings. But in this setting, we're trying to connect Christians across denominations to shine light on darkness systemically for our city. And while my convictions have become stronger around um, and perhaps more orthodox, probably more scripturally um, orient, more more dedicated to scriptural um, orthodoxy. Um, at the same time, um, I think that our job is to work with Christians of all kinds of denominations to say, sometimes we don't need to work, work, we don't need a minor in the minors, we need a major in the majors when we're trying to shine light on darkness in the outside world. You know, I've, I've heard people say, and teachers, uh, that in order to really understand what Jesus was saying and to understand scripture, you have to read it in the presence and in the discussion context of both white Anglos and African Americans in blue collar and white collar in poor in cities and in countries. And once you read it in those contexts and with those people, then you can begin to get a glimpse yeah. of what it really means. Because when you just read it in one context, you're going to miss it. Yeah. Or you're going to interpret it through that. Do you Have you found that to be true? And, mm-hmm. you know, as you guys study, uh, as you guys read, and as you go on these conferences, is it what's it like to get input from mm-hmm. different walks of life? So our main, um, our, our most intensive offering we have is a class called Gotham. Um and we license that from the Center for Faith and Work in New York that um, was launched out of Tim Keller's church. And we, by design, try to, in Gotham, we have two sections of 14 or 15 each, and we, by design, try to make those racially diverse, denominationally diverse, age diverse, generationally diverse, and industry-wise diverse. Um, yet the, the links across the group are everyone there is um, pursuing the Christian faith and everyone there um, has some type of um, influence that they want to steward. Mm. Um, and I, I say influence rather than leadership because I think leadership ties people to a position on an org chart whereas influence is much broader. And so... Um, it's not, it, it is, we have succeeded in denominationally diverse. We have succeeded in industry diverse. Um, we've made baby steps in racially and um, socioeconomically diverse. But this year our group has um, 
in the last couple of years, we've had black, we've had white, we've had Asian. This year, I have a refugee who came from Burma as a mm-hmm. child. And so when you've got um, an African-American who has spent their whole life in North Nashville mixed with someone who grew up in Belmede, mixed with someone who moved here from out of town to take a job and lives in Brentwood, mixed with, um, you know, a Burmese refugee who's um, been here um, for 10 or 15 years, you just get a different kind of conversation than you get when um, you're in a church you know, people still say church is the most segregated hour sure. of the, and there are definitely some cross-racial churches and all those good things, but I mean, you get some powerful experiences. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you, um, you know, what's neat is the organic work that comes afterwards, mm-hmm. and it's when um, they start working together on projects outside of here in their work context that came out of those. Are there ever, is there one or two experiences you can share, I know, not to put you on the spot, where... Yeah those environments have caused people to change their views or lights to go on. I mean, I think those are beautiful experiences. Anything specific? Um, You know, someone last year um, would have been um, as, well, I'll tell two stories. Someone last year would have been as far to the right on the political spectrum as someone can get and um, would probably have been in the camp that Christianity equals that political allegiance. And he had his world rocked Mm. when he sat down next to um, Christian Democrats and had to figure that out. Mm. And um, I don't know that his political views has changed, but he is softer. That's Um, beautiful. Another example, um, we have prayer partners in this program. (laughs) By, I'm using air quotes, the listener can't see. By coincidence, um, I ended up pairing probably the most politically conservative person that's ever been in our class with someone who um, actually ended up almost running for office in the Democratic Party, um, is married to someone of another race, and is anyway, just (laughs) is so um, pro-refugee movement and all kinds of things. So they couldn't... more polar opposite yeah. people could not have existed politically, and I paired them as prayer partners during the Trump-Clinton election cycle. Wow. And they are still meeting every month or so, wow. a year and a half later, to what is it, a year and a half, two years later. Um, so I think that um, heart change is beautiful, mm-hmm. but it's also starting to lead to projects in their workplaces. Yeah. Um, Action, not just... Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And so that's what's... What, and certainly our... We that's got to be very rewarding. We have you. no... We have no political agenda. We have no... We're not trying to... Um, and politics and politi- political change or friendship is not at all within our mission. That just happens to be a clear example that I can give you of kind of seeing some hearts softening towards other because of the gospel mediating mm. it. Um, we, <laughs> we had a example last year at a conference where one of our participants was talking about a white lamb um, being being part of the savior story and one of our black participants thought he said white man and was saying are you saying Jesus was white and this was a powerful racial this misunderstanding was kind of a powerful racial reconciliation reconciliation moment I think something that happens in these groups is because we meet 
we kind of have a secret sauce of four things, one of which is the importance of authenticity, mm-hmm. the importance of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Because we meet so often and because that's an important ingredient of the you know, secret sauce, um, it has allowed some um, areas of trust to be built where assumptions have been made and hurts have been happened because of assumptions. Instead of this black man going away and thinking, see, that Belmede guy's a racist, there was a comfort zone to challenge it. That's good. And break down a misunderstanding. That's great. Um, and it wasn't all clean and shiny, but it sure. took some time. But it was... But um, you provided a safe place for a safe civil, place for kind discussion. Yeah. Uh, and open discussion. And I think that's what's Try missing. Try to. That's what's mm-hmm. missing. Try to, yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, this has been uh, wonderful. What? How can people find out about what you're doing and if they want to get in touch with you or NIFW? Mm-hmm. Um, NIFW.org is our website in Nashville. I Institute F Faith W Work. NIFW.org. That's probably on there. There's a. It's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me too. There's just a, if you need a. Um, send an email, it'll get to me. Um, there's an info at nifw.org email. Any of those end up coming to me. Um, we have a re- we also have a resource page. A lot of our outside speakers are on our resource page uh, along a whole lot of different types of industries and experiences and things like that. Well, Missy, thank you for sharing your heart. Thank you for sharing your work. And uh, we hope that you continue to find fulfillment in NIFW and that you continue with the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for your friendship.